Well, good morning. Great to be with you guys this morning, and you are in for a treat today. Uh, our, our guest is, is an author who has written a number of books. His most recent book we have available in the bookstore, Even in Our Darkness, A Story of Beauty in a Broken Life. Uh, like I said, we've got copies in the bookstore today, but you can get all of Jack's materials, uh, Amazon.com put Jack Deere's name in, you'll get all of his books will come up there if we run out or you, you just forget to do that today. But, but Jack is, is an author. He has been a pastor. Uh, he served as a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary for a number of years. Um, I think I, I, I'm trying to think, how did I first come across Jack? Uh, it, it was during the time when, I don't, I don't think I was wrestling through, I think I was more wrestling for a defense of an understanding of do miraculous things still happen in our day. You know, we read the Bible, we see an amazing amount of miraculous activity. Should we see stuff like that today? We see gifts of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament church. Should we see things like that today? Now, if you've ever asked that question and you've never read a Jack Deere book, you still don't know the answer that well. Because uh, I, I really, I can't recommend, and I have historically through the years, I'm having a conversation with somebody who's trying to explore that, and, and they're really open to seeing, hey, what's a real fair analysis of the scriptures here? Uh, I have pointed them to Jack's materials above any other materials, because I, I think he has brought the most clarity from a biblical standpoint to those topics. And so I, I hope you'll do that. Go look up Jack's materials uh, back in the 90s. Believe it or not, if you've been a part of this church for any time, uh, you, you have been receiving benefit from Jack's materials because I've been reading them and been benefiting from them. And whenever we get into this subject, I've probably quoted Jack in a message or two in those areas. So we are excited to have him and his wife, Lisa, with us this morning. They are uh, quite a couple, and, and God has done amazing things through their lives, through the years. If, if you look into this book, this latest book that Jack has written, you will hear and see a lot of their story and see how God has revealed himself to and through Jack through a many years of, of walking with him. Um, so, Please open your heart uh, to receive from Jack. If, if you're new to Lakeview a, a little bit, um, you know, one of the things that we are eager to receive is, you know, we, we put a great deal of emphasis on God's word. Uh, we're, we're not really interested in creating something that, that God hasn't made clear that we should be pursuing. But there are experiences in God, you know, that, that are going to find their way into your unique situation. Uh, we are interested in that as well because the God of the Bible is still the God who is personal and who's involved with us individually. Now, I love the fact that God is pointing out that he knows the number of hairs on our heads. He knows our name. He has written them, engraved them in the palm of his hand. God is personal. He is here. He is today. And so we want to be open to experiencing God that way. So if you're new to Lakeview, I hope this morning you get a chance to hear uh, a means of opening your own heart and your own life to the God who wants to be experienced and known personally today. And God does that through his word and by his spirit. So please, uh, please welcome Jack Deere to our pulpit this morning. Look forward to hearing from him. Thank you. Thank you. 
Thank you so much. It is great to be with you. Um, I wrote this latest book that Keith mentioned, Even in Our Darkness. It's actually uh, a book about becoming friends with Jesus, and that's what I want to talk to you about uh, this morning. It's also an unsanitized version of the Christian life. So, uh, and that's the only version there is. It's the one we live. But sometimes professionals like me, we stand on a stage and we present our life better than it really is. And what that causes is uh, frustration among the people who are hearing us. And they think, well, man, that's not the way I live. And uh, I've got this wrong and that wrong. And then uh, the, the people who hear us just go underground with the wrong things in their life. And that's where those wrong things grow. Um, It's so important for us to be able to have someone we can talk to about the really hard stuff uh, in our life because it doesn't get healed until we can bring it out into the light, expose it to the light. And this book doesn't have religious language in it. I I took all that out so that somebody who's never gone to church, never opened a Bible, could actually read this and understand it. And we've been getting great reports back of people coming to know the Lord from reading this uh, book. I want to read you the first chapter. It'll just take about seven minutes, but it's the introduction to the message that I want to give this morning. On the morning of December 31st, 2000, I watched a white cardboard coffin travel up a conveyor belt into the belly of a Boeing 757 along with the other baggage. The body in that coffin had belonged to my son, but he had gambled with it once too often. 21 years earlier, I had watched him sprint into a door jam. The collision rocked his blonde head and knocked him on his butt. I held my breath and braced for whales. Instead, he jumped up, laughed, and galloped off to his next crash. As Scott grew, the collisions became less physical, but they still occurred regularly. When his second grade teacher handed him a homework assignment he didn't like, he crumpled it up and tossed it over his shoulder. He discovered drugs in our church parking lot about the same time he hit puberty, but he never allowed the dysfunction of addiction to steal his greatest gift, the ability to make people fall in love with him. He swayed cops with a smile and was only warned when they caught him driving drunk or with pot. He would buy himself a place to stay for another six months with an offer to mow a friend's lawn. His jokes brought invitations to dinner. Not only was he charming, but he was also lucky, usually. When his car was totaled and his buddies were carried off with broken bones, Scott waltzed away without a scratch. Scott had some clean months, but mostly he lived from one high to the next. We lived from one crisis to the next. After he turned 21, he told me about a dream in which he had died and lay in a fetal position. It was so real that he felt his spirit leaving his body. And he looked down on his corpse. He awoke surprised that he was still alive and that he lay in the same fetal position as in the dream. What do you think the dream means, Dad? He asked. And why did I wake up in the fetal position? I didn't hesitate to answer. I was familiar with warnings that come in the night to pierce the indifference of our waking hours. It means you will die if you don't change, I said. I want to change. I know you will, Scott. He would get clean for a few weeks, and his mother and I would grasp for the hope that maybe it would last. A year after that dream, he was home for Christmas. He popped his head into the TV room after dinner to tell us he was going out with his girlfriend. It was the last time I saw him smile. He said, Good night, Dad.
I said, goodbye, Scott. An odd story flitted through my mind. A few hours before his death, Abraham Lincoln told his bodyguard goodbye. A twinge of guilt passed through me. Why did I say goodbye to Scott instead of goodnight? The foreboding didn't make sense. He seemed clean for the past couple of weeks. He had enrolled in college. In the morning, his mother planned to take him to Target to buy dishes, a comforter, and cleaning supplies for his new apartment in Bozeman, a mere 300 miles east of our home in Whitefish, Montana. The next morning, I sat downstairs in the living room by the fire. Above the mantel, two elk hung high on the wall, my first rifle kill and my first bow kill. I was, waiting for, I was writing my next book on my notebook computer until the noise of a malfunctioning DVD player broke my concentration. It came from Scott's room. I walked upstairs and opened the door. Then I turned and ran for the phone. Is he breathing, the 911 operator asked. The word no stuck in my throat. I couldn't say it. No meant I couldn't bring him back. No meant I had no faith. No was final, but it was the truth. No, I said. Then I raced upstairs to try to bring my son back from the dead. After the paramedics put my son into a body bag and carried him out of our home, my wife and I, along with Scott's brother and sister, descended our mountain and checked into a local resort. We could not sleep in the same place where Scott lost his last bet spinning the cylinder of a revolver. I woke up in our hotel room as the sun crept round the edges of the curtains. Out of habit, I started to pray the same prayer I had prayed every morning for years. Father, and then I remembered, and then I choked on the word protect. I could not get it out. I suppressed a disdainful laugh. I wasn't ready to give up on God, but it felt like he had given up on me. I could not reconcile my theology with the nightmare we were now living. Weren't prodigal sons supposed to come home? I thought I had ensured Scott's life with the promises of God and my prayers. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart, King David had written. Had I not delighted enough or was I deceived about what my heart desired? Ask and it will be given to you, Jesus told his followers. I had asked every day for years. I hadn't just asked, I had believed as well. And according to Jesus, belief in the promises is supposed to make them work for you. Had I not believed enough, or were those promises empty? For decades I had preached that the mystery of suffering would always elude our understanding. It was an easy thing to say, until the weight of that mystery crushed me. I didn't know how to get out from under it, except to flee to the place where I grew up. So with Scott's body in the luggage bay, I sat in the Delta Airlines 757, surrounded by strangers, hurtling south through the midnight sky. Then a voice spoke into my shock and confusion. It was so faint, so ephemeral, that I might have made it up. Hold my hand, I thought it said. I could hardly picture that hand. But it was there, and always had been, guiding me through the rage-drenched home of my youth, thrusting a wrench into familiar patterns of purposelessness and poverty, and blow by blow, destroying the illusion that I could earn the gifts it bears. In the beginning, everything was formless and void, but a spirit hovered over the deep, dark, and violent waters. Then he spoke, let there be light. He saw that the light was good. Although the dark was not good, he allowed it to remain. But he separated the light from the dark. He called the light day and the dark night. 
And against that great vault of night, he flung stars to serve as guidepost and as a reminder that light was always pushing through the darkness. I am old now, and my night is near, but his first commandment still resounds, gaining strength as it conquers space and time. When I open myself up to his light, the end feels more like a beginning, a flicker at dawn that spreads until everything radiates under the noonday sun, and all I can see is his beauty. That chapter introduces the question, how do you go from looking at a cardboard coffin with your son's body in it, traveling up into the belly of a, of a plane, to that last line, all I can see is his beauty. How does God get you from one place like that to another? And this book is the answer to that. And the short answer to that is it happens in a friendship with God. Now, I did not know uh, that God wanted a friendship with me. I grew up in a traumatic home. Um, Mom and dad were at war from the time I was uh, five or six, and we couldn't understand the war. Uh, My dad became more absentee. My mom became angrier. Mom beat us. We saw less and less of uh, dad. And uh, my parents not only had no Christian friends, they had no friends. Sick homes don't have friends. They have secrets. And so we got no, no help from with outside. I was nine years old, and I asked my dad how you get to heaven. And he told me this. When you die, you will go up and stand before the gates of heaven. St. Peter will come out to meet you, and he will bring two books. All your, a book of all your good deeds and a book of all your bad deeds. And he will place a set of scales on a table, and he'll place the good deeds on one side and the bad deeds on the other. If the good deeds go down, you go up. But if the bad deeds go down, so do you. Forever and ever you'll burn in hell. I was nine years old when I heard that. And my heart just sank. And I thought, better not to think about God or heaven. My mom had already convinced me that I was a bad kid. And my bad deeds would always outweigh my good deeds. So I put God out of my mind. I put heaven out of my mind. And I thought, I I might as well just enjoy being bad in the time I have left. And when I was 12 years old, I was the oldest of four kids, my father killed himself. That's how he ended the war with mom. And he left a 34-year-old widow with a 10th grade education to care for his four kids. And in 1965 in Texas, or 1961 in Texas, uh, that, that was not possible for uh, a lady like that to care for kids. And so we saw this parade of men come in our homes, uh, all kinds of different men, but they all had one thing in common. They didn't stay. And we saw things in our home we shouldn't see. And, and I was the oldest. Uh, I had two younger brothers just a year uh, down uh, below me. And we all went wild. Uh, we, uh, uh, and I had eight friends who came from broken homes or homes that were in the process of breaking. We were all athletes. Um, I was the worst of the group. But we had no supervision on us. And we would drive 120 miles an hour drunk. I couldn't, I couldn't afford nice clothes, so I stole all my clothes. I figured out ways to steal uh, expensive clothes. Uh, and in that group uh, of guys, there was one smart guy. His name was Bruce. And uh, Bruce was the one guy that was really interesting to talk to. Um, When we were in the sixth grade, 
Bruce wore a Nixon button to, uh, to school and campaigned for Nixon against John Kennedy. And, he was, and I went home and asked my dad, I go, Dad, what, what are we? Are we Republicans or Democrats? And my dad, my dad was a maintenance supervisor for General Motors. And he said, we're Democrats. So I went and told Bruce, we're, we're voting for JFK. And he goes, you're stupid. He'll wreck the whole country. And he goes into this tirade. He's 12 years old. <laughs> and politics have inflamed his heart. Um, and, and he was smart. I mean, he used words in his everyday speech like uh, apogee. Fistula. Um, it, and uh, when we got a little older, Bruce was a lousy athlete. Uh, he, he never made a team, but he got to stay in our group because he knew more about sex than all the rest of us put together. <laughs> and so he explained things about the girls to us and what was going on and changing bodies. And, and he would talk to the beautiful girls for hours on, on, a, on the phone and they would tell him their secret crushes and tell him secrets about themselves and their parents. And sometimes Bruce would tell me... Um, so, uh, in our, the summer before our sophomore year, Bruce chases a blonde named Dixie to a church camp in, in Fort Worth. And he didn't catch Dixie, but he caught religion. The worst kind. Southern Baptist, hellfire, damnation religion. <laughs> and he came back telling us that we were supposed to respect girls. And we're not supposed to get drunk anymore. And we said, we'll see you, Bruce. And so we just excommunicated Bruce from our group. <laughs> Bruce considered me his best friend, but I wouldn't talk to him anymore. A couple of times he tried to witness to me, but I, but I would say, what do I need your God for? I treat my mother better than you treat your mother. And you know, that was true. And he would leave my house crying. And he, after two, three times, he just gave up. But here's what he did. He prayed for me every single day for 18 months. And he asked all those Southern Baptist church kids to pray for me. So I don't know this, but in my neighborhood, there's a church full of kids praying for me to come to God. On uh, December 18th, 1965, Bruce said, if you'll spend the night at my house, I will introduce you to some beautiful girls from Pasco High School. Pasco High School is the wealthy high school on Fort Worth's west side. The high school Ben Hogan graduated from, the great sports writer Dan Jenkins graduated from. We were on Fort Worth's east impoverished side and we had no famous people in our high school and so he says they're really beautiful if you spend the night with me we'll go meet them saturday morning and i go okay i'll do it i'll endure a night with him to meet beautiful girls the next day he forgot to tell me they wanted to be missionaries (laughs) he had met them in some inner church function so uh at uh two in the morning now december 18th 1965 i uh don't know why I do this, but I, I asked Bruce how you get into heaven. It's, we're still up. I'm on one side of the room in a bed. He's on the other side. And he says, Jesus Christ died on the cross for you. I was 17 years old. I had never heard Jesus Christ die on the cross for me. And you say, you live in the Bible Belt in the 1960s and you hadn't heard that? Well, you, There was no internet back then, no religious TV. You had to go to church to hear that message, or you had to have Christian friends. And I didn't go to church, and I had one Christian friend I wouldn't talk to. I had never heard that. Jesus Christ died on the cross for me. And uh, he said, if you will trust him to forgive you and give you a new life, he will come into your heart and never leave. And I said, what if I do something really bad? And he started laughing. He said, Jackie... You are going to do bad things the rest of your life. I can guarantee that. But he doesn't come into your life because you do good or bad things. He comes into your life because you trust him to forgive you 
and give you a new life. And he will never leave. And I said, oh, that can't be true, Bruce. That can't be true. And Bruce said, oh yeah, it's true. And when you're 17 years old and everybody you've ever loved has left you, and then somebody tells you the greatest person in the universe will never leave you, it is too good to be true. And, and, he, and he said, no, no, it's really true. And I said, how do you know? And he said, because Jesus Christ said so, and Jesus Christ can't lie. And then he quoted the first verse of scripture I ever heard. He quoted John 10, 28. I give my sheep eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. That was the first verse of scripture I ever heard. And I was instantly born again. I could not have told you I was born again. (laughs) I could not have told you I was born again because I had no religious vocabulary. Repentance, confession, none of that stuff was in my uh, vocabulary. Uh, When I heard that verse, all I said in my heart was, God, I'm coming over to your side. And so you can be born again without even knowing it because you're born again the moment we trust him to forgive us and give us a new life. And that's what I did. Um, about uh, 10 days later, I, I called Bruce and told him what had happened. He says, don't go anyplace, like I was going to change my mind. And he r- runs over to my house and he puts a King James Bible under my nose and takes me through the Sermon on the Mount and says, here, read this. And you know what? I loved reading the Bible. I started reading and I never stopped. And about three months later, God sent a young life leader into my life who was eight years older than me. And he taught me to love the things that he loved. He loved scripture. He loved reading it. He loved studying it. He loved memorizing it. So as a 17-year-old, I started memorizing uh, scripture. He loved C.S. Lewis. I became a C.S. Lewis devotee. Um, And he laid this foundation in in my life. And I ended up becoming a young life leader just like him, leading kids to Christ, teaching them to love what I loved. Um, And then I went to Dallas Seminary after I graduated from college. I majored in philosophy, which is a totally worthless major if you want to put bread on the table. Uh, But that... My, my goal was not to go to college to get a job. If I, I'm going to go to college, I'm going to major in philosophy because I want to see what's so powerful about all the agnostic and atheist arguments. So I read Nietzsche and Sartre and Camus and all those guys. And I go, is that the best you got? Uh, and it, and it, instead of hurting my faith, it strengthened my faith. So I'm leading a young life club the whole time. I get out and uh, Dallas Seminary is famous for teaching scripture. And I, decide, uh, and I meet some of their graduates who know the Bible better than Jehovah Witness. It was amazing. Uh, it, and so I decide I'm going to go to Dallas Seminary to, uh, uh, just to learn the Bible. I don't, I don't want to be a preacher. I don't want to be a professor. I just want to learn the Bible. I'm, I love the Bible. And, and so I go there and I, and I find out that I have this facility with Greek and Hebrew. Seminary students absolutely hate Hebrew. I'm never going to use this stuff, the horrible script. They tolerate Greek a little bit, but really is most, uh, most seminary students, as soon as they get out, they throw all that stuff away and get on with their real life. Um, I was just the opposite. Participles and infinitives made me happy. I just loved the study of Greek and Hebrew and, and watching a truth emerge out of a syntax of a sentence. And, uh, it, it wasn't discipline for me. I just studied it because I love it. And I got really, really good at it. And uh, then I went in the doctoral program just to get better. And, I, and before I, after the 
one year in the doctoral program, I became a professor at uh, Dallas Seminary, a professor of Old Testament, exegesis, and Semitic languages. And for the next 12 years, that's where I stayed, started a church, and it was growing. Um, also became, during this time, uh, really anti-supernatural. Not believing that God was healing or doing miracles. And what I did was, I deified the Bible. I actually talked more about the Bible than I did about God. And I glorified the mind. Like that was the most important way of, of uh, knowing God. And, uh, and everybody around me was just like me. And if you say, what about loving God? I go, yeah, sure. We're, we're, loving God's really important. And, and uh, so, so, so uh, I spent time with God, reading the Bible a lot every day. And you spend time with people you love, right? So that must mean I'm loving God. I was 38 years old, been a professor for 10 years. And I had never heard this phrase, passion for Jesus. Have you heard that phrase? Passion for Jesus? I had never heard it. In fact, if I thought about feelings at all, it was about thinking about a strategy to defeat those feelings. Feelings were bad, mind is good. That was my mentality. And then I heard this guy stand on a stage with an open Bible and no notes, and he talked about having passion for Jesus. He proclaimed not a truth he studied, but one that powerfully lived inside him. And uh, when he got through, I thought, I want passion for Jesus. The, the problem is I don't know any friends that even knew what it was, let alone how to get it. But I decided I wanted those kind of feelings I just saw in this person. I want those. And he, and he gave us a great prayer. If you brought a Bible, turn to John seventeen twenty six. And I'll show you the prayer that I started praying that night. It's John 17, 26. It's the last verse of the high priestly prayer of Jesus. The greatest prayer ever prayed on earth was prayed on the last night of Jesus' ministry on the earth before the cross. This is verse 26. He says, I have made them known to you. So, it's a, he's looking up to his father and saying, I have made these 11 men. Judas is out of the picture now. They're in the garden. I've made these 11 men known to you. And I will continue to make you known. Isn't that good news? Jesus goes to heaven, but to all of those who believe in him, he's still revealing the father, showing what the father is like. He says, I will continue to make you known. Why? Why do you want to do that? In order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. So it's like Jesus looks up to heaven and says, Father, you love me with this holy, fascinated, uh, passionate love. Now I'm praying, I'm going to show them what you're like so that that love you have for me may be in them. That's the purpose of the revelation of the Father is, is for us to feel about the Son of God like the Father in heaven feels about him. So, well, how do you do that? By praying. That's what, he's, that's what he's doing. God governs the world through the prayers of his saints. For years, uh, I studied more than I prayed. I still study, but now I know the most important thing I do is pray. And so, back in 1987, I, started, I stole this prayer from that speaker and I started praying every day. Father, let me love the Son of God like you love him. And... Uh, now, I know that I'm not ever going to love 
the Son of God with the perfect love that the Father loves him. But I'm praying for that quality of that love, for that passion, for that holy preoccupation with a person. I'm praying to share in that quality. So I started praying this and I didn't really notice anything uh, changing, but I prayed it. I, w- I would pray it in the morning when I got up. I prayed at night, driving along in the car. My mind goes to neutral and uh, I-, I would just pray the prayer. And after a couple of years, I saw of uh, praying him, I saw a friend I hadn't seen in years. And, and after just talking for a little while, he said, uh, what have you been doing? I go, nothing. He says, well, you're different. I go, what do you mean? He goes, I don't know. You're just different. I go, uh, bad different? And he goes, no, no, it's good. It's good. He said, it's like you're softer. And I said, and that's good? And he goes, oh, yeah, 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 that's really good. <laughs> and, and after he left, I go, what have I, what have I, and I go, oh, I've been praying that prayer. I've been asking to love the Son of God like the Father loves him, and I'm finding my feelings for Jesus are growing, and, and other areas of my life are changing that I didn't even know were changing. I wasn't even praying about. Then I go to Anaheim. Go on the staff with John Wimber's church. John Wimber was a famous trainer and equipper in the supernatural then. He was the most loved and hated pastor in America. Anybody who is doing something great for God is going to be hated and by religious people. And John was one of those people that was actually changing the way we go to uh, uh, church. And... Uh, he was a great trainer and equipper. He taught me how to hear God's voice. He taught me how to pray for the sick. And I've actually been in the room when blind eyes have opened, when people have gotten out of wheelchairs, when, when people who just spent a lot of time in the asylum get prayed for uh, and don't go back in the asylum. I've seen some really incredible things from having been with Wimber and, and, and having learned a little bit about uh, praying for people. So I went on his, his uh, staff uh, for four years in Anaheim, California, took all of our kids out there. The boys all decided they were going to be surfers and, and uh, not go to college, um, which was not good in our family. And uh, one day I was driving home from, uh, 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 driving on my way to the office and I was singing in the car. And I, and I realized, man, you are happy. And I thought, why am I so happy? Uh, I hadn't gotten a new toy. I had no exotic trip to look forward to. Nobody said anything nice about me. And so I just said, you are really happy. And I'm going to find out why, because I want to keep this going. You know, I wasn't my normal, morose, sullen, bitter self. Uh, so to keep this thing going. And I started thinking, well, you know what? You are praying more than you've ever prayed before. And it was true. I would take an hour off during the day. We had, our offices were in this big, huge warehouse. And I would tell my secretary, I'm going to be gone. Don't try to find me. And I would go over to some dark part of the uh, warehouse. And I would just sit and, and pour out my heart to uh, God. And, I, and then I thought, ah, and you're reading the Bible more than you've ever read it. Not, not to prepare to do a message or whatever, but just for the pleasure it's uh, giving you. And, uh, and then I thought, and... You're fasting. One of the nice things about being a cessationist, uh, a person who says all the supernatural gifts have been gone, is it gives you this category, this kind of theological waste paper basket, and you can throw things in it you don't like. So you don't like miracles, you don't like speaking in tongues, you don't like Pentecostals, just toss them in that basket and, and say it's all fake. And one of the things I tossed in that basket was fasting. Yeah, that was maybe just Old Testament. Uh, because I hate fasting. I hate it. Um, every once in a while, one of my friends said, I forgot to eat lunch. That sentence does not compute in my mind. 
I may have missed lunch, but I guarantee you, I did not forget lunch. Um, and and uh, when my little experiments with fasting, I just hated it. And now I'm going through this revival, and, and I say, and you're fasting. And you're actually kind of enjoying it sometimes. And, and so without knowing it, I'm riding along in the car and I'm going, ah, oh, that's why you're so happy. You are, you are so spiritual. You're doing all these things you have. I'm just patting myself, congratulating myself uh, in the car, thinking that that's the source of my happiness. And then I hear this voice. It's not audible, but it explodes in my head with the force of an audible voice. It said... Don't rejoice in your commitment to Jesus. Rejoice in Jesus. If you rejoice in your commitment to Jesus, it will lead you into self-righteousness. Let me say that again. Don't rejoice in your commitment to Jesus. Rejoice in Jesus. If you rejoice in your commitment to Jesus, it will lead you into self-righteousness. And you know what self-righteousness is? It's that feeling that we're superior to other people in the room. Superior to other people who don't go to our church. Superior to people who maybe not in our home group. It's this feeling of superiority. And when, when he said that to me, my whole life, it's like I had a, this vision opened up. And my whole life came into focus. And I saw myself going up a mountain and, and being, having a lot of joy and going, oh, this is awesome. And then about halfway up that mountain, I start looking, hey, I'm higher than the other people. Wow, this is pretty great. And, and the next thing I know, I'm out in the wilderness, out in the desert. And it's like the Lord came down and sat beside me in the car that day and said, you're heading back out toward the wilderness. Don't do this. This has been the pattern in your life. I want to stop it this time. That was an amazing, amazing experience. And I did not have experiences like that until I started praying every day. Uh, Father, grant me a work of the Holy Spirit to love your son like you love him. Just turn John seventeen twenty six into a simple prayer. Father, grant me a work of the Holy Spirit. It takes God to love God, right? So I'm saying, grant me a work of the Holy Spirit to love the son of God like you love him. And then the second prayer is in John fifteen fifteen. Jesus says, I no longer call you servants, but friends. And, and, and it's, he's not saying that service is, not a, service is not important, but he's saying, we're going to a new dimension now. I want a friendship with each one of you. What's the essence of your uh, friendship with your best friend? Is it about serving your best friend? No, we'll do that in a heartbeat, but that's not what the friendship's about. Why do we have best friends? We have best friends for the pleasure it gives us to be with our best friend. And, and we feel immense gratitude for the fact they want to be with us, right? Friendship is about enjoying another person. Best friends enjoy each other. There's a special chemistry we share with our best friend that we don't share with other people. And, and, and part of the, the, the great byproducts of that is we can, we can tell them anything. We can tell them our worst stuff. And we don't worry about them ever using it against us. I mean, best, having best friends, one or two or three best friends, is absolutely essential for a happy life. It's absolutely essential for spiritual growth. And Jesus says to them, I want to be friends with you. I, I want you to enjoy me. I want you to feel my pleasure in you. That's what friends do, right? That's what he wants with us. And... and uh, and the book of John is the one that talks about it. John caught this more than anybody else. Because you know what John was called in the book of John? 
the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was actually the best friend of the Lord Jesus. That's where he found his identity. Not in his performance, not in the fact that he wrote the Gospel of John, wrote those three letters, wrote the book of Revelation. He found his identity in the fact that he was loved by Jesus. What would it be like to find our identity there instead of some area of our performance? It would be really freeing and really joyful. He was the best friend of the Lord Jesus. And you, you see it in, uh, in all, all the time when you're reading the Gospel of John. So it's the Last Supper, right? Jesus, they're all set around the table. Judas is still there. Jesus drops the bombshell on them. Uh, one of you is going to betray me. And they're all wondering who it is, but nobody has the guts to ask him. So Peter looks over at John and he goes, you ask him. This really happened. You ask him. Because Peter knew what everybody else around that table knew. That John could get something out of Jesus no one else could. He was his best friend. So where was John sitting? Mm, Right next to his best friend. So what does he do? He goes, okay, Peter. He just leans his head over on Jesus' chest and says, who is it, Lord? Who's going to betray you? And Jesus says, it's the one I give this piece of bread to. Then he gives the bread to Judas. John straightens back up and goes, "Uh, Peter, it's uh, Judas. He's the one. No big deal, right? You can ask your best friend anything. And I was saying this one time, and a theologian type guy got really ticked at me. He, he, he kind of growled. He goes, you saying that Jesus loved John more than the other disciples? I don't believe that for a minute. And I go, no, no, I'm not saying that. I don't believe that either. I don't think Jesus loved John more. But friendship is not just about love, right? I mean, you can love someone and not be a friend at all. See, friendship is about love and trust. And Jesus trusted John more than anyone else in that circle. See, I I never had a best friend that I loved more than my son Scott, the one that we lost. But Scott and I never became friends. We couldn't trust each other. But Jesus could trust John like no, no one else. And you see it the next day. He's on a cross. And at the foot of the cross, there are four women standing to the shame of all the men. All the men are gone. They've left him. Except one. John is standing there beside the mother of Jesus. And Jesus looks down at his mother. And he sees the pain on her face and the confusion. She's trying to reconcile those great promises of Gabriel. Of this son that's going to be the savior of the world. With what she's seeing right now. And she can't do it. And he looks down at her and he sees that. And he thinks, not my brother's. They don't even believe in me. Um, Not the apostles. They're all gone. They've all left me. And he looks at John and he thinks, John, you're the only one I've got. And then he looks at his mom, the most precious person in the world to him. And he says, behold your son. And then he looks at John and says, behold your mother. He gave John the most precious person because John was the only one he could trust. Um. When, when I actually learned what was going on there in the Gospel of John and, uh, and saw it in other people, like uh, Mary, she's at the, she, uh, she's at the banquet and, uh, with, with the disciples and she's the only woman in the room and the guys don't want her in there. Uh, but Jesus says, Mary chose the best part, the part that will never be taken. Mary was one of his best friends. So I just, I started praying after that, Lord, I want to be one of your best friends. Um, his, 
and not because I'm so spiritual. I don't think I'm spiritual. Um, but because his heart is so big. His heart is so big and so merciful that he can accommodate many, many best friends. And, uh, and, and so I've been praying for years now, Lord, I want to be one of your best friends. Grant me a work of the Holy Spirit to, to be in that circle with John and Mary and all the others who are, uh, who are there. I want to feel your pleasure in me. Uh, I, I want to delight in you. Let me be one of your best friends. Um, long shot, probably a long shot, but you know, one day I'm going to stand before him. And uh, all of us, the most important appointment of our life is uh, after we leave this life, we're going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, just by ourselves, nobody else, just us. And he's going to pronounce an evaluation on our life, on the way we've used uh, his gifts. And I don't want to stand before him and hear him say, Jack, you could have been one of my best friends if you would have just asked. So I'm, I'm, I don't want to leave anything on the table. So that's my, uh, that's my daily prayer. Father, grant me a work of the Holy Spirit to love the Son of God like you love him. Lord Jesus, let me into that circle. Let me be one of your best friends. Change my heart, whatever is necessary. And here's the third prayer. So I said three prayers. This is the last one. Turn to uh, Psalm 27, verse 4. Psalm 27, verse 4. We'll end with this one. Three great prayers to become friends with Jesus. And, and some of you are saying, yeah, but obedience is really important. It is. Obedience is super important. But here's what happens in my life. When I make obedience the most important thing, that's when I'm least obedient. When I make enjoying God the most important thing, that's when I'm most obedient. See, somehow getting my eyes off myself, off my performance, and putting them on a person transforms the rest of my life. So it's like, keep the main thing, the main thing. The main thing is that we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor is ourself. And I used to pray that prayer, and I still pray that prayer. But now I know I can't love him with that kind of abandon unless I feel his love in me. Right? We love because he first loved us. So Lisa told me one time, I was praying the prayer to really going after it, praying the prayer to love God, love the Son of God like the Father loves him. He said, you know, she said, you know, Jack, until you really feel his love, it's going to be hard for you to love him like that. You know, a lot of us, we go through life feeling like... God's a little bit irritated with us. And the only reason, you know, he hadn't smote us is because it's an open question we might change. And we kind of go through life thinking, well, he'll really like me when I get everything cleared up. Well, let me tell you, that day's never going to come. I mean, none of us, all of us are going to have a subpar performance. None of us are going to live the the great life we want to live. But that doesn't impede us from becoming friends with him and experiencing his love. Okay, now this is Psalm 27 verse 4. This is my third daily prayer. David wrote this. David uh, wrote it 3,000 years ago. This whole book of Psalms. And uh, David was the greatest prayer outside the Lord Jesus to ever walk on earth. See, we're still praying 3,000 years later. We're still praying and singing the prayers David wrote. Nobody else has that track record. All the Babylonian, Akkadian literature, and all the ancient, that's all gone now. Nobody, Egyptian literature, nobody pays any attention to that stuff. But his prayers, two billion people are still praying these prayers. He was the greatest prayer that ever lived. And in Psalm 27, verse 4, here's what he does. 
he boils all of those prayers down into one single prayer. He says in verse 4, One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. One thing I ask, this is what I seek. If I get this, I get everything. He wants to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. It doesn't happen outside, outside of God's people. It has to be with God's people. So, but this is the essence. I want to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. I want to see your beauty. He's not saying, Lord, would you uh, teach me about omniscience? Would you teach me about your attributes? He's not asking for that. He's asking for an encounter uh, with the beauty of the Lord. And what's beauty? Beauty is what dazzles us. That, that's a good, good definition. Um, philosophers and poets and theologians have argued over this for years. But essentially, you look at uh, the Mona Lisa and you're dazzled. There's not a more famous painting in all of art. All the people who know art are dazzled by that painting. And, uh, and the harmony of all of her features, the way they work together. If you were just to subtract one of those features, you would diminish the effect of her beauty. So beauty is the thing that dazzles us. Um, now I know something about that. When I was uh, 18 years old, I stood on a pier at Huntington Beach, California... And for the first time, I looked out over the Pacific Ocean, and I saw my first ocean sunset. I watched that star that the ancients worshipped drop into the ocean, and then God painted the whole sky purple and orange. And I thought, I have never seen anything this beautiful. This is absolutely incredible. I was dazzled by that sunset. Um, The first time I heard uh, Beethoven's Ninth, I was dazzled by what, how how could a deaf person do something like that? And then I saw this 19-year-old girl on uh, May 18th, 1973, get out of the back of a yellow Pontiac coupe. And my first thought was, what idiot put her in the back seat? It was in East Texas, in the the noonday sun, and I thought, she is the most beautiful person I've ever seen. And uh, then I heard her voice, and uh, I was in love. And here's the funny thing about that. I'm a big-time young life leader by this time. I'm a seminary student. I'm giving all the sex talks to all the young life high schools in Fort Worth and the summer camps. And here's one of the things I'm telling all the kids. There is no such thing as love at first sight. It's impossible. You're just infatuated. You you have to know a person before you can love them. And uh, that smile refuted that doctrine, just like that. So... I know what it's like to be dazzled. Now, fast forward to, uh, 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 not fast forward, Um, let me just apply this to the church. So David is saying, I want an encounter with you where you dazzle me with your beauty. Some kind of feeling of your love. He's not asking for a theological explanation or knowledge. Okay, so I was a young life leader for... um, 11 years, and I heard high school students say this all the time. I heard, especially guys, they would say, I know my father loves me. And they look at the ground when they say it, and I'm thinking, if that's true, why uh, are you so sad when you say that sentence? Um, I stood in, I went to rescue my son Scott, the uh, 
the summer before he died. He was, he was 22. He was sleeping in a garage with a dog in Mountain View, California. And uh, I went to rescue him to get him out of that garage. And um, we were standing in the parking lot of the, uh, the, in Palo Alto of the Stanford Mall. And I said, Scott, God really loves you. And he looked down and he goes, yeah, God loves everybody. And I went, no, Scott, no, no, you're special. You're special to God. Everybody's special to God. I had a great theological truth, a great, true theological truth. And, and I tried to give it to him, but it just bounced off that Kevlar vest of shame that was wrapped around his heart. And I didn't understand those things back then. So I think the church, well, a lot of us in the church go, I know God really loves me. I mean, we have a theoretical belief in it, and, uh, but sometimes not a lot of experience of it. And every once in a while, I'll hear pastors say, you just got to preach it to yourself. They'll read a passage about God loving things. You just got to preach this. You just got to tell this to yourself. Really? Is that the way it works? Is that the way we feel love? We just tell ourselves, tell ourselves we're love, we're love, we're love. Is it, uh, wives, is that the way it works for you? I know my husband loves me. I know my husband loves me. I know my, is, that, is that what we're supposed to find out? Really? <laughs> and, and not even our husband saying I love you. That, that's good. But really what we want is an experience of their love, right? We, we want them to show us in a way that's meaningful t- to us. And that's what David is praying for. He's praying, Lord, l- let me see your beauty. Let me experience your beauty or your love in a way that's meaningful to me. And when I caught on to this, I started praying for this. I started praying. I, I, I pray, grant me a work of the Spirit to love the Son of God like you love him. Jesus, I want to be one of your best friends. Lord, dazzle me with your beauty today. Every morning when I get up, one of my first prayers is, Lord, show me your beauty today. Give me a work of the Spirit that drives me to want to see your, your beauty. And, uh, and you know what? He answers those prayers. So now I'm going to give it to the church. Fast forward. It's June 11th, 2012. And uh, I'm in my study early in the morning. I've got it open to Psalm 27.4. And I'm asking God, I'm, I'm asking God, would you dazzle me with your beauty today? I'm just asking him to come down in the study and dazzle me with his beauty. It's Saturday. And Saturday for a preacher means he's going to be on a stage the next day. So I want him to dazzle me with his beauty. But I also want a good story for tomorrow when I'm standing on that stage. So my motives are mixed, Right. And, uh, and, and I don't worry about those anymore because my motives are always mixed. I can always figure out, no matter how great the blessing is or, or, or the experience with God, I can always figure out a way where this is going to benefit me or make me look better in some way. And it doesn't seem to trouble God that our motives are mixed. He, he's he's going to take care of those one day when we stand before him. That mixture is going to leave. But for now, I'm, we just live in a, this realm we live in and, and pursue uh, God. So... I got, I got uh, lexicons, commentaries, different kinds of Bibles, and I'm, I'm saying, dazzle me with your beauty, Lord, and then give me a good explanation of this, and, and it's not going anywhere. I spent two or three hours doing that, and on that day, God had not hidden his beauty in books. So then I say, okay, plan B. I get up from my study, I walk into the uh, guest bedroom, and I lay down on the guest bed. And, uh, and I'm going to just rummage my history with God until I find something that's dazzling. And, and so I, I say, God, I am not going to get off this bed until you dazzle me with your beauty. I really did say that. I thought maybe he'll be impressed and maybe he'll come through for me. 
So after two hours of lying on that bed and rummaging through old memories, I see some acts of forgiveness and kindness and all that, but I am not dazzled at all. And then my cell phone pings, and I take it out, and, and there's an 18-second video on the cell phone. So then I go in, I get up off the bed, go into my computer, play the video, and uh, I look at it. And I'm smiling, and then I'm laughing, and then I play it again. And then I play it again. And I, and I keep punching the play button, and I say, I'm, I, I, one more time, and then I'm going to get back to God. He's waiting in the bedroom for me. Uh, and then I punch the, the dang play button again. I can't stop punching the uh, play button. It's a 18-second video of my first grandchild, Rachel, who in the video, she is uh, two months old. I want to show you that video that pinned me in a chair for I don't know how long. See if we can get it up here. That's Rachel's mom and grandmom saying, say goo. You were made for the camera. Like, I like it. That's good talking. I like to talk. Well, look at your bow. It's pretty, Rachel. Bow. A goo goo. A goo. A goo. Do you hear that? No, just one more time. Just show one more time. So they, they, I think some of you didn't hear this. A goo. A goo. You were made for the camera. Like, I like it. Good talk. Like Your bow looks pretty, Rachel. A goo goo. Look on you. Yeah. Yeah. Two months old, and she says her first syllable on command. I mean, brilliant. It's total brilliance, that little girl. Finally, when I could put the, when I could stop watching the video and, and I could start thinking again, I realized what's happening to me the whole time I was watching that. I think 11 months ago, that little baby was just a single cell. Before she was a cell, before there were any cells, before there was a when or then, she existed in the mind of eternal beauty. And, uh, and she is speaking her first syllable after traversing the epochs. And her day, having all of her days written in the book of life. It's only one moment among millions that will make up her existence. But I want to stay in that moment for as long as possible. Because I am being dazzled by beauty. Um, Then I feel a pang of sadness. She's growing up so fast. And we live in separate cities. uh, And I'm going to miss so much of that growing up. If I stay in another city, I want to jump on a plane and go to her. I keep watching and watching and I laugh at myself for delighting in that little baby girl. 18 seconds of Rachel's life have made my spirit dance on the stars. And then I hear that voice out of nowhere. It says, that's how I feel about you. And I collapse. I start sobbing. My mind turns off. I just sob and shake. And shake. Uh, and after a while, I try to reach for the keyboard and I, can't, I just sob all over again. Never in my wildest dreams <laughs> would I have imagined that God delights in me. Never would I have thought that. And I know that voice. I know it was Him uh, saying that. Uh, he's taken this self righteous, uh, 
know-it-all and, and turned him in to an old man, a wash into the gibberish, a wash in gratitude for the gibberish of a child. I mean, who does that? When I can finally speak, all I say in that chair, I just sit in that chair, and I don't know how long, I just say over and over, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, I am not a holy person. Every night I lay my uh, head on a pillow, and I know that day my bad deeds have still outnumbered my good deeds. I am not a holy person, and I don't plan on becoming one in this life. But I am a loved person. And almost, I wouldn't say almost, I would say every week now, since I set my heart on feeling his affection and asking him for it, and I open up my spirit to him, uh, every week now I have some kind of encounter with his beauty that makes me feel so special and so loved. And that's really the key to answering the prayers I've been praying to love the Son of God like he loves him. It's feeling his love uh, first. And uh, this is, this is the experience that God wants all of us to have. And it really is ours just for the asking. Um, and if it doesn't happen right away, don't get discouraged by it. Just keep praying prayers like the three prayers that I just gave you. And, and it will eventually happen. It's the key to happiness. It's the key to loving God. And it's the key to walking in the purposes for which we were created and being a blessing to other people. Everything is about love. It all begins with uh, love. It's not about our performance. It's about feeling his affection and returning it and sharing it with other people. Um, So let's, uh, let's pray for a moment, pray for these things to happen to us. If you're here this morning and, and uh, you don't know the Lord Jesus, I mean, you don't know that if you were to die today, you would go right into his presence. Um, you could come to know him today. Just that simple. Uh, he's here and he would love to come into your heart and never leave. And, and that happens the instant we trust him to forgive us and give us a new life. If we just said something like this, Lord Jesus I trust you to forgive me, and now I trust you to give me your version of life. Please come into my heart. We just said something like that in our heart, and that's what we really wanted. He will come in, and he will never leave. He will come in, and he will start changing our hearts, making making our hearts like his. And if you've never done that before, and and you want to, do that right now. And then before you leave here today, uh, come up and Find someone with a prayer team up here at the front or, or come to me or to Pastor Keith and, and let us pray with you also. We would love to do that. Now, Father, for the rest of us, uh, I ask that you would grant us an impartation of the Holy Spirit to pray to love the Son of God like you love him, to pray to become one of your best friends, And to pray every day to see your beauty. Come in the power of impartation now. Uh, For all of us who want this work of the Spirit, would you begin that now in our hearts? For some of us who are already traveling along that road, would you strengthen that impartation?
If you have something in your uh, body or in your spirit you want the Lord to heal, uh, take a few seconds and just ask him to do that. Sometimes he will heal people just without you getting out of your seat, without anybody praying for you, just the fact that you ask. Just take a few minutes and pray for anything you want him to change in your body or your spirit. Let's all stand. And uh, uh, prayer team, home group leaders, would would you just slip out, come up to the front so we can uh, pray for people that want prayer? Just slip on out, come on up here. Uh, while we were silent, I was just uh, asking the Lord to show me something that uh, he would heal or a place that we could uh, start. And allergies uh, popped into my mind. So I feel like if uh, you have an allergy, uh, it can be anything. Uh, today would be a good day to get uh, ask someone to pray for you. And it can be one of the folks up here. It could be somebody you uh, came with. The Lord really does heal, heal in response to prayer. He, he did it when he was on on the earth, and he is doing it today. He's not stopped for 2,000 years uh, healing people. So when, as we dismiss, feel free to come up to the front. So Lord, we thank you for uh, that you want to be friends with us. Make that a reality. Make that a reality. We pray for our friends who don't know you. We ask you to keep them on our hearts. So every day we come before you and, and pray for our friends to come to know you. Go with us this week and let our friendship with you grow. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Okay, God bless you. You're you're dismissed. Feel free to come forward for prayer.